Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So here we go. So it starts with, I'm going to show you a picture of my dad here. This is my dad. His name is Robert, and uh, he was a pastor at a large church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And when I was 12, uh, my mom developed bipolar with mild schizophrenia, mental illness. But we didn't know what the problem was. We just knew mom was very, very erratic and life at our house was very chaotic. And we went through about a year and a half of trying to figure all that out. And my dad got her in front of a psychiatrist and he diagnosed her correctly and put her on medication. And when that happened, dad got in trouble with his boss at work um, who thought that psychiatry was not a good thing. And he thought that my mom was in rebellion and, and so they demoted my dad from his job and publicly humiliated him in front of 2000 people and dad in a very gentlemanly way fought back and he vindicated himself he communicated very effectively that my my wife is not having some kind of a moral failure or rebellion she has a mental illness it's a chemical imbalance she's on medication and you owe her an apology and you owe me an apology. And uh, I deserve to be reinstated in my job. And he prevailed um, despite we had relatives and people saying, get the hell out of Dodge. And, you know, this is an outrage. He stuck to his guns and he got his job back and he got his honor back. And a week after he got his job back, he went to the doctor with blood in his urine and found out that he had a kidney full of cancer. And so he had to go get surgery and get his kidney taken out. And I remember at the hospital, we had some friends that came to spend the day with us. I remember this one lady named Laura Lee, and she spent the day with me. She was one of my friend's moms. And she just kind of kept us occupied because everybody was nervous. You know, they could open data up and cancer could be all over the place and 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 send him home and say, well, there's nothing we could do. Uh, everybody was very nervous, but it looked like they got it all and they took his kidney out and sent him home. And, and I vividly remember uh, every time we get to this time of year, I remember Christmas of 1983, which was 40 years ago, dad's healing up and neighbors are coming over and bringing casseroles and church friends and helping to shovel snow. And I remember I had a paper route and dad got on the mend. And so, you know, life got back to normal. Well, a year and a half went by 
And one afternoon in the summer, I was in the basement and I heard the door open and dad came home at 2.30 in the afternoon. And that was an unusual time for him to walk in the door. And he says, uh, Betty, my cancer is back. And my mom went hysterical and just became a emotional mess for about the next three months. And um, so cancer number two. And so he got in cancer treatments and he went to MD Anderson. He went to Johns Hopkins, uh, which are both top uh, cancer places in the world. And, uh, you know, they did everything they could, but it wasn't working. And uh, uh, this is, I'm pretty sure my parents' 25th wedding anniversary, which would have been the last year that my dad was alive. And um, it got him when uh, he was 44 and I was 17. It was my senior year in high school. And um, one of the people on this call, his name is Tom Rempel. Uh, Tom was uh, our youth pastor, and Tom had had a daughter named Dawn Marie who had leukemia when she was four. And uh, she was now, by the time this picture was taken, she would probably be 10 or something. Uh, but everybody knew the Rempels had gone through the horror of possibly losing a daughter. Uh, this was well known. Everybody knew they, they had gone through that. And I remember they came over for Thanksgiving the last year that my dad was alive. And I remember uh, Tom saying to me, hey, Perry, if you ever want to talk about this, let's have a Coke. And I'm not even sure I was openly admitting to myself, but I, I know that what I was thinking was, why on earth would I possibly want to do that? Because if I sit down with Tom and talk to him about what all this is like, I am going to be a simpering, sobbing mess and I'm going to lose it. And, and I don't want to do that. And so no, thanks. I, I, I think I'll take a pass on that. And, um, you know, it's funny is I've been unpacking all that with a counselor the last couple of years and just uh, kind of astounded at the degree to which I was able to shove all that stuff down and be stoic and courageous and not feel my feelings. Um, but th that was how I dealt with it. And so... Like I said, I uh, lost my dad in my senior year. Um, my mom had to go back to work and she didn't have any real marketable skills. She mostly got almost minimum wage jobs. Um, my dad had bought $100,000 of life insurance and that's what my mom had to survive on. 
I'll tell you a little more about that later. Uh, as I go through this, uh, th there's a video I'm going to show you at the end. There's a lot of little pieces to this story. But uh, yeah, when I was a senior in high school, I became the man of the house. My sister just got married and I was trying to figure out how to do school. And so off we went. So I want you to imagine uh, for a minute, what would happen if you could go in and get a simple test every year that would help you diagnose cancer at stage negative one or stage zero? Imagine that you could go to Walgreens and get a blood test and find out you don't have cancer, but your kidneys or your pancreas or your lungs or whatever organ is sending out stage negative one pre-cancer cells. And imagine if you got that early warning and you could do something about it then. And I want you to imagine all the people that you know or knew who could have been saved if that was even possible. But one time somebody said to me, a problem clearly defined is 95% solved. And here's the problem. Uh, the problem is the transition from no cancer to cancer has never been studied in adequate detail or scale. Uh, we have unimaginable amounts of data on stage three and four cancer after the horse is out of the barn. We have comparatively tiny amounts of data at the earliest stages and the data already exists, but it's not getting collected and it's not getting shared. This on the screen, this is a boy named Alex Smiley. His parents were, are friends of mine and his kids were friends of Alex. Uh, and this picture is from 2008 or nine, probably. And Alex died at age 13 of leukemia. And when you go to cancer conferences, because I've been to a bunch of them, uh, you see all kinds of data and uh, slides of genome sequences. You never see a picture like this. I was at a cancer conference two weeks ago. There were no pictures like this, but this is what leukemia looks like at age 13. And cancer treatment is a $250 billion epic fail. Uh, stage four patients are no better today than in 1930. That's a fact. In 2023, we're using the same drugs for acute myeloid leukemia as we were using in 1977. Richard Nixon declared a war on cancer, and it's been a failure. The U.S. government alone has spent $250 billion. That's a quarter of a trillion. That's $250 million million. Not gotten very far. And the fact is, is we can detect and treat cancer early. And it is easy to deal with cancer at stage one or zero or negative one. It is very, very hard to deal with it when it gets to stage three and four. Uh, but unfortunately, 90% of the money goes into stage three and four. And that's for most cancers, not all, but for most cancers, it's an exercise in futility. And 90% of the success is in early detection. 
And it's 100 times more cost effective at that stage, and you have a lot more runway to deal with it. So some baseline facts are one in five cancer survivors will develop a new and different type of a second cancer. And 20% of all new cancers diagnosed will occur in a cancer survivor. And so there's gonna be 2 million new cancers next year and 400,000 of them will be in a cancer survivor. So what if we had access to a repository large enough to be able to find the correlations? And what I'm describing here needs to be done and it's never been done on a large scale. And so I am working with some of the best cancer people in the world to begin an open source tissue search engine for finding the cure for cancer. And it's already built, it is ready to run, it only needs electricity, and we just need to fund it. And I'm going to uh, describe this to you. I'm doing this with Azra Raza, who I'm going to tell you about in a couple minutes. Let me tell you how I got into this. This is a picture of Bill Middleton and Laura Middleton, very good friends of mine. Laura... Four years ago, in November, I got a text from Bill. I was in Australia. I had done a seminar the day before. I was taking a day off, and I got a text. Hey, guys, my wife, Laura, has pancreatic cancer. Well, I had a lot of experience with that because of a friend named Tom Hubiar, who I will introduce to you in a few minutes. And uh, I was at Tom's side for a week when he died of pancreatic cancer. And I knew, so I knew what all that meant. Pancreatic is one of the worst you can get. And on the same day, probably within a couple of hours, I got an email from this guy. This is James Shapiro. He is a bacterial geneticist at the University of Chicago. He is, in my opinion, the best evolutionary biologist alive today. And he and I became friends in 2011. And he has been my science mentor. And my book, Evolution 2.0, is basically James Shapiro for mere mortals because my book is written at a high school or freshman college level, and Jim's papers are PhD and above. And he is one of the best scientists by far that I've ever met in my life. And he emailed me the same day I heard from Bill. And he said, Perry, I want you to meet Frank Laukeen and Henry Hang. And the three of us went to organize a cancer and evolution symposium in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we would like you to help. Would you help us? And I said, yes, in a hot second. And 
we went to work and it would have probably been at Harvard or MIT, but COVID hit and we had to move it to Zoom. And that probably ended up being a good thing because everybody was at home and it was easier to get people on a Zoom conference than a physical one. We got all the speakers we want. We had 300 people in attendance and it was a success. And um, cancer cells are when your own cells forget who they are and they forget they're part of you and they think that they are lone rangers floating around in the ocean as it were and everything around them is an enemy and they go rogue and cancer is when those cells when you attack the cells and they use their evolutionary machinery to evade whatever you just did and their evolutionary machinery has an almost infinite variety of tools in the tool belt. And so it's incredibly difficult to fight because you're fighting the power of life to evolve. And I knew this, and Jim knew I knew this, and he knew I was a marketing guy, and he knew that if he could get me to help, you know, put butts in the seats, that it would be a success, and it was. And so it turned into a monthly series. It turned into a series of conferences that have been going on ever since. And it was taken on as a working group of the American Association of Cancer Research, which is the largest cancer research group in the world. This is definitely the funniest slide I'm gonna show you today. This is, um, I took a picture of the list of steering committee members of the Cancer Evolution Group in the AACR. And you can see all of these people, Bill Ade, MD, MS, PhD, 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 MD, MD, PhD. And in the middle of this list, you have Perry Marshall BS, which stands for Bachelor of Science. And so apparently they needed a little Perry Marshall BS. Uh, but th these are not just a bunch of MDs and PhDs. These are actually some of the best cancer people in the world. And they invite me to their meetings and I'm on their steering committee. And um, I was just at one of their meetings a couple of weeks ago and they return my phone calls and they consider me a colleague. And I I've managed to become a part of this very elite group of people. And as an outsider, I have an ability to do things that people on the inside can't do. And I can go out and rally support for a project like this in a way that they can't. And since I'm part of their group, then I have the advantages of being both on the inside and, and on the outside. And the secret to solving cancer is human tissues. And before what I'm going to show you today, there was not a way to break the logjam of continuing to pour money into late stage cancer where it's not really going to do much good. No one is studying cancer survivors for early detection of a new cancer. And that is what we're doing here. And we are going to do it. And we're going to make the raw data available to the public. 
So I want you to think of stages of cancer. There really is something called stage negative one. And it's when they can detect cells in your bloodstream that are precancerous, but they haven't turned into cancer yet. And then most people are familiar with stage two, stage three, stage four. Those are household words. Well, as you go through these stages, in stage negative one, you have a lot of time and it's not very much money. And then you get to stage zero and you got less time and it's more money. And then stage one, you got less time and more money and less time and more money and less time and more money and less time and more money. And here's the thing, billions and billions of dollars and tons of data are being studied and collected at stage three and four where it's basically too late. And that's 20% of results that you're gonna get for 80% of the effort. All of the leverage is over here between stage negative one and stage zero. This is the 80-20. This is where you're going to do 20% effort and get 80% of result. And there's almost no money and almost no data going here. This is basic common sense. You don't need a PhD in oncology to see that this is true. Now, this is Azra Raza and Jin Song Lu. I'm going to tell you about Azra in a minute. Azra is at Columbia University. Jinsung is at MD Anderson, which is the largest cancer hospital in the world. These two are detecting cancer at stage negative one today. They're already doing it. And I want you to imagine, what if we had access to tissues of cancer patients in remission? The blue ones represent patients that do not get a second cancer, which is most of them. And the white ones represent patients that come up with a second cancer. What if we had the tissues and the blood of both populations and we could study in detail as the cancer begins to appear, if we could see exactly precisely what all is going on, all of the biomarkers, well, here's the thing. All cancer patients in remission return for a checkup every six months. They go back religiously. 80,000 people a year go back to MD Anderson for their annual checkup. And they are at higher risk every year for a second cancer than people that have not had cancer. So this is the ideal population to study if you want to understand the earliest stages of cancer. And just imagine frame by frame by frame, in slow motion, being able to watch it develop and see exactly what's going on. And right now, tissue repositories and biobanks, they exist, but almost all of them are in institutional silos. They're owned by individual universities or hospitals, and the records are private. And there is no known tissue repository for cancer patients in remission. It doesn't exist. 
and we want to make it exist. And it's all ready to go. And all we need is a little bit of money to collect and analyze that data. And now you're saving four times more lives for one fourth the money. So let me tell you about Osra Raza. When our cancer and evolution seminar was in the early planning stages, Jim Shapiro, my mentor, told us about a book that she had written called The First Cell, which refers to the very first cancer cell that appears in your body. And I was fascinated by this book. Jim was very impressed by this book. And I got her on a podcast to tell her story. And I was very impressed because her book is a scathing indictment on the failure of the cancer industry to solve cancer and the immense amount of money that's being spent. And that we're, we're focusing all of our energy on the wrong end of the 80-20 curve. And I asked her to be our keynote speaker and she said yes. So she's at Columbia University. She has been treating leukemia patients for 34 years. She has accumulated 60,000 samples from pre-leukemia and leukemia patients over that time. She is curator of the world's largest tissue repository that's been collected by a single individual. She wrote a book called The First Cell. She's published in all the major journals. She's detected a new kind of precancerous cell in patients with pre-leukemia and leukemia. And uh, she raised money for a company that detects cancer at stage negative one. And you guys know me. Uh, I don't have to explain, I think, very much about myself, except I'll, I'll just say my $10 million evolution prize and my evolutionary book, for all practical purposes, those are my PhD. And the Cancer and Evolution Working Group now has 3,500 scientists. So I'm the founder of a scientific society, co-founder. And I brought an idea to the table that I think is very necessary to make this tissue repository revolutionary across the medical field. And, and I need to slow down and explain something as an outsider, I've worked for quite a few years in my career in the technology industry. Um, I helped build and grow a hardware software company before I started doing what I do now. And we sold that company for $18 million. And while I was working at that company, I became familiar with the open source software movement. And tech people know all about this, but most people who are not tech people really don't. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, if you worked in hardware or software, you would run into these weird zealots and they were all banging this drum called open source software. And they said, software needs to be free and people need to share. And um, it sounded like kind of like hippie free love. It was like, you know, that's a really nice idea, but how are you going to get paid? Like, we're all trying to make a living. How are you going to make any money uh, writing and giving away free software? 
but it worked. And an open source software agreement says, you can take this free piece of code and you can use it, you can do anything you want with it, but if you modify it or make it better, you have to share your improvement with everybody else. And if we can get tens of thousands of people writing and sharing free code, then all the software people in the world can have all the code they need to do anything they want to do for free. And it will help the world. And this started in 1991 with Linus Torvalds. Linus Torvalds created the Linux operating system, which was based on Unix. Unix was paid, Linux is free. And he became the uh, benevolent dictator of, of Linux. And this idea started spreading. And now Android is free software, WordPress is free software, Linux is free, MySQL is free, Apache Web Server is free. The software that runs Ethereum is free. Uh, Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, all of these things came out of open source software. And all of the big platforms, Google, Facebook, Adobe, all of, all of them have huge amounts of free software that they're built on that runs all their servers. And free software made the tech world that we today live in possible. And so probably your television set runs on Linux. And whoever made your television set took that free software and they put the pieces together that the way they wanted it and they made your television set. And maybe your television set is $50 cheaper because they didn't have to buy an operating system from Microsoft. And so this has swept the software world and the world we live in would be completely impossible without this. And when I learned about tissue repositories and when I learned about how a lot of the scientific data is stored, it reminded me of software in the 1980s. And as a business consultant, I perfectly understand why in the short term, it's in everybody's business interest to keep their data proprietary. So let, let, let me make really clear what I'm saying. Most scientific data that is actually used for cancer research is proprietary data. Only those scientists have access to it. Everybody else doesn't. Everybody else only gets access after they publish a paper. And it's published in all these little silos that are scattered around everywhere. It's not in one place where you can get it and sequence it and study it. This is a huge problem. It's part of the reason we're not curing cancer. And I looked at this and I said, if we make the tissue repository open source, that will solve this. We want some 14-year-old prodigy, child prodigy from Italy to be able to download petabytes of cancer data with patient, anonymized patient records, blood, saliva, stool, tissue, hair, fingernails, study all that data, look at the difference between cancer patients and not cancer patients and figure out 
how to stop cancer at the very, very, very earliest stages. Uh, let me come back to Tom in a minute. So during the pandemic, Azra Raza got a whole bunch of top, top, top cancer people on a series of Zoom calls, and she formed a little group. And she got nine hospitals to agree to start collecting blood, stool, saliva, urine, fingernail, and hair samples from cancer patients in remission every six months when they come to their checkup so that we can study the progress of early, early, early stage cancer. And these are some of the best schools in the world. Columbia, Harvard, MD Anderson, Johns Hopkins, Northwestern, University of Chicago, Freeman Health, Dana-Farber, City of Hope. These are the best cancer hospitals in the world. And they have already agreed to do this. We are only missing the funds to collect and analyze it. And we have a 501c3 structure in place for people to donate money and get their tax deduction. $2 million gets this thing going and it's ready to start tomorrow. And Jin Song Lu, I mentioned him earlier, and Ken Pienta at Johns Hopkins, they are helping run this thing. This group that I told you about, they published an opinion piece in Scientific American. They said, we've got to find ways to detect cancer a lot earlier than we're detecting it. So it'll take $2 million to get this thing up and running. There are no other obstacles. The groundwork is completely laid. And here's the thing, we will intercept hundreds of patients with early treatable cancers by month 12. We will already at that point be in a position to say, Mrs. Jones, uh, your lungs are in stage negative one and we need to de-stress your life or change your diet or get you exercising or you need to forgive your ex-husband or you need to do prayer or meditation or yoga or green tea or whatever it is so that your lungs don't go into cancer mode. This will lead to stage negative one and stage zero therapies for numerous cancers. And that's not all. This will also be equally applicable to Alzheimer's and dementia and diabetes because they are all age-related, stress-related diseases. And you'll be able to study those diseases just as easily as you study cancer because they're going to collect genomics, proteomics, metabolomics on all of those tissues. And it also means that the first donors that gets this thing off the ground become the Linus Torvalds of modern medicine. Linus is the guy that started the Linux operating system, and he's really the godfather of open source software. This is Rob Berkeley. Rob's funeral was five years ago today at Martha's Vineyard. Rob died of stomach cancer. He was a very good friend of mine. Um, I was uh, part of a mastermind group that he ran called Entrepreneur to CEO. I learned a lot about running a company from Rob. Rob was 58. I want to talk to you about saving people like Rob. And, and then I'm, I'm going to tell you some more of my own story 
we had some donors offer to match any gifts that come in up to $25,000. And so if you can help us out and make this a reality, any money that you put in gets doubled. And uh, monthly pledges help too. Um, you can donate at reversingcancer.org slash donation. And John can put that link in the chat for you. Or you can send the checks to this address. And like I said, our organization is a 501c3 organization. And I, I hope you're able to see why I'm putting so much energy into this. And if you've got a million dollars laying around, this will really help us out. But even for regular, ordinary people, you might say, well, you know, I, I how much difference is it going to make to give 500 or or $5,000? You know, this isn't going to make much of a difference. But I need you to understand that it will, and here's why. When we approach big donors, they always want to know who's with you and who else is supporting this. And they don't want to be the first person. And this makes them not the first person. When we can say, you know, we have 250 people or we have 500 people who are already supporting this, then it really comes a lot better across. And so, end of the year is coming up and you can get this on this year's taxes and you can help us start what I think is one of the most important developments in the history of cancer research. And it will start saving lives immediately because we will find out that people are in stage negative one when you can still do something about it. And there's a lot of runway. And then I, I want you to do something else. I want you to write down the names right now of two people that you know who would care about this. I want you to write down two people that have either you know that they would care about this or they've lost somebody. When my dad had cancer, talk about an emotional roller coaster. From one appointment to the next to the next, the numbers are up, the numbers are down, the numbers are up, the numbers are down. I, I would just experience these huge mood swings. And some days I just felt like the walking dead myself because I was so depressed and I didn't want to talk to everybody about it. It, it was awkward. And, and, and people would ask how dad's doing. And, you know, if the numbers are good, then, then it's optimistic. And then if they're bad, I feel like I'm delivering this really bad news. And if you challenge just two other people to join you in supporting this, then it triples the number of donors. And that makes a very big deal. You know, I don't think all of us all by ourselves can take out cancer, but when we start bringing in other people that we know and, and getting the snowball rolling and setting the stage for some large donors to say, hey, I see you guys are really committed to this, then it really does make a difference. And I am just, I am so appreciative that you're here and that you're listening. And I, I'm thankful that you're willing to listen and, and believe in what we're doing. 
I want to show you a very interesting video that almost nobody's ever seen. This is from May 4, 1986. My dad died October 4, 1986. So uh, he didn't know it at the time, but he had five months to live. This is at the end of a church service. The pastor who's on the right. So on, on the left is my mom and dad, Bob and Betty. On the right is a guy named Gil, who's the pastor. And he got to the end of his message and he says, Bob and Betty, could you come up here to the front? And they had absolutely no idea what was going on. Uh, everybody in the church kind of had the idea that dad was probably terminal. And they knew things were not looking good. And I want to play a little bit of this for you. To help you on your way west as far as we could get you. I thought, well, I drive a van, so I think it's great for anybody to go on a van. Oh, I, I meant to explain. They, they sent a letter to everybody except us asking to raise money so that we could go on a vacation. My dad had never been to the West Coast, uh, and he wanted to go to California. And so that's what they're talking about. Van. So we said, well, we ought to have Bob and Betty have a van for them and their family to go. Uh, so we thought, well, we rent a van and then give them some money. We had a goal. We want to get you as far west as North Platte. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> we got a van. Somebody has provided a nice luxury van, uh, not me. Uh, so that's taken care of. Uh, we praise the Lord for that. Then we thought you ought to have some money. I want it to be a kind of trip where you could relax, enjoy it. Uh, if Robin's getting married, well, you get somebody out of the house, it's sort of a relief. And, uh, nothing personal, Robin and Ted, I'm sure it'll be great. We didn't want you to have to stay in a tent or anything. So we have, and I'm told here that hundreds of people have uh, been involved in contributing. And you can still contribute because they're not gone yet. So if you said, well, I'm still thinking about it. Well, up until the time they leave, we'll accept contributions. But we have enough to get them not only to North Platte, but to Ogallala. So we praise the Lord for that. We ought to take, I feel like a quiz show now. What do you think it is? Uh, in fact, you'll be happy to know there's enough here that Marilyn and I will go with you. So uh, we're glad for that. The amount is $9,200. Yeah. So... Our friends gave us some money, and we went on a vacation. It was enough money to hit every state west of Nebraska, including Alaska and Hawaii, uh, which was amazing. In fact, I, uh, when I was in Alaska, I mailed a letter to a certain girl named Laura that I later married. And, uh, in fact, here, let me share my slides again. This is my brother, Brian, on the left, and me and my mom, Betty, and my dad on that vacation. I think that photo was taken in California. And uh, we never had $10,000. I mean, that was an unbelievable amount of money. 
And so we're driving around and 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 we're we're eating and we're staying in decent places. And I just remember feeling very squeamish that, you know, we're we're spending all this money and like we're not gonna have any money like when dad's gone. So are, are you sure we should be doing this? And my basically my dad said, Perry, we are going to enjoy our vacation. And we're going to spend this time together because it's our last vacation together. And we're going to trust God to take care of us. I'm like, well, okay. Well, you know, it's funny looking back. After my dad died, there was a couple named Bill and Elaine. And they took my mom out to lunch and they asked her, Betty, what do your finances look like? And, you know, she kind of gave them a vague answer. And they said, point blank, how much are you falling short every month? And she said, I'm digging into savings $800 every month. And they said, we would like to take care of that for you. Um, He owned a scientific instrumentation company and Elaine would come over to our house. She would drive over in her car and personally hand mom a check for $800 every month for, I don't know how long, Uh, but that's probably uh, why I was able to go to college instead of just going and getting a job and supporting mom. A couple years later, Laura and I won $10,000 from a radio station and that paid for my school. And and I remember going over to my mom's uh, work. She worked at JCPenney. She worked behind the jewelry counter and we took this $10,000 check over and showed her to her and she, she burst into tears and she, and she goes, see, I told you, God takes care of the widows and orphans. And like we did okay. So I believe that you can turn lemons into lemonade. And I believe that bad things turn into good things. And I, you know, I believe that people get taken care of. But, you know, I I've actually been working with a therapist uh, for the last year or so. And one of the things I've been processing is how absolutely terrified I was at that time. And I I was so terrified that I I wouldn't even admit it to myself. And I know a lot of you can relate to this because you've been through it. Like, how am I ever going to survive this? And I want to tell you, I went to a John Eldridge conference once and he was telling a story. His son had just gotten married. And so they had a brand new daughter-in-law and they came for the holidays and they stayed there for a week. And he said, he said, we sat down one night to have dinner. And I told her, I said, we're, we're so happy to have you as a daughter and as a member of our family, and you're so lovely, and you're such a a wonderful addition to our family. And I suddenly 
burst into tears. I mean, it hit me like a sack of lead. It had never occurred to me. It had literally never occurred to me what my wife, Laura, missed out on by not having a father-in-law. We were stoic and we were tough and we were smart and we were resourceful. But, you know, now I was in my 40s and I realized how much she'd missed out on by not having him in her life. Not to mention me or my kids. And I think this is preventable. We can detect cancer at stage negative one. We can do things about it. It is possible for there to be a blood test at Walgreens that you go take once a year. It is possible for them to develop therapies or drugs or treatments or ways to circumvent when you know that a kidney or a pancreas or, an, or a stomach or a colon or a prostate or a breast is at stage negative one. We've barely scratched the surface of treating it at that level. I have a friend, Michael Levin at Tufts University. He's reversing cancer cells back to normal cells at will. I know this can be done. I'm just tired of the way things are. How about you? Last night, I went to a gathering and a friend of mine who had a little bit of skin cancer on his back last fall of 2022, he came up to me and he goes, I've got cancer again. And this time it's at the base of my spine. And we spent about half an hour talking about that. He's the guy we're talking about. That person, we can take their blood and some of their other tissues. There's enough of these people, and it's easy enough to do. We could have caught that at stage negative one six months ago, but we didn't. We can, and I need your help to do it. So reversingcancer.org slash donation. We've got a page there. And you can pay with a credit card or you can send checks to the address on the screen, uh, 805 North Marion Street, number 295 Oak Park, Illinois, 60301. And uh, John, let's get you back on the screen and we'll wrap this up. Well, Perry, first of all, I, I know I've heard your story about your father and stuff like that, but it, it's it's a great reminder how we've all been affected by cancer. There's not one person on this call right now that either doesn't have it or has had somebody close to them uh, have it and gone through those difficulties. And uh, I think that's why everyone is on the call because it's it's affecting our our family and friends in ways that, and we feel helpless. 
right? We feel helpless with these things. I I was at a house that I have here in San Diego and the neighbor came up to me and say, hey, how are you doing, Elizabeth? And she just said, well, my mom just found out she has pancreatic cancer. And, you know, my heart just sunk because it's like, and she knows that I, I volunteer with uh, Science Research 2.0 and, and I was like, I don't know how to help. I don't know what to say other than I'll pray for you and I'll talk to some people and see if there's options, but she's in advanced stages. And, and, um, and we all have these things where either ourselves, family members and friends have gone through this. And so we, we're all in this, we're all wanting to do something. And I think we all together, I know Perry that we've been talking as a group in the organization is like, this is one of the things that has the chance of radically shifting the landscape to basically cure cancer. It's got one of the best opportunities because it opens up things like that 14-year-old prodigy in Italy <laughs> may see something no one else has seen. And, and that's what it opens up. That's what open source, the power of open source is. Linus didn't know what was going to happen with what he created. No, no. They just knew if we do this, this is a very, very good thing. And if we do this, it will create a resource that will accelerate. So like the whole internet and, and all of the services that people now take for granted are all possible because of open source software. And, you know, there's a lot of people on this call who are marketers and marketers appreciate the value of data and, you know, being able to target people uh, on Google or Facebook and and they know how valuable data is. Well, I, I went to try to give you a perspective. When I go to a cancer conference and see a presentation, number one, that researcher had to get that data. And that was the hardest part. It's hard to get cancer data. Right. We want to make it easy. And secondly, almost all the data they have is stage three or four data because that's the only data that you can get. What if stage zero and negative one and stage one data was available for everybody to get and it was free? It will affect healthcare the same way that open source software has affected technology. The world could be completely different in 20 years. It's completely different now because Linus and all those zealots who sounded like hippie, it sounded like a religion. And again, ask any software developer, where would the world be without open source software and just let them tell you. So this is what we need to do. And we have nine hospitals ready to go. And Azra has Columbia University's all the buy-in, they're ready to do it tomorrow. And, and you might be asking, well, why aren't they already doing this? Is because it's not in any one person's or any one institution's financial interest to put up a few million dollars. It doesn't specifically help their bottom line. But there, you know, there's an old kind of fault tale called Stone for the Stone Soup, where a guy is uh, walking around with a bucket of water saying, hey, you know, I'm hungry, let's make some soup. And you know, like one person throws a rock in there and then somebody else throws some celery and somebody else throws some carrots and eventually you have soup. But 
you know, people needed to see somebody throw something in, you know, it, it probably helped that even somebody threw a stone in there because at least it got it going. We're, we're trying to solve a chicken and egg problem and we can do it. And we're doing it with the best cancer hospitals in the world. I want, I want you to notice all of that work is already in place. And I didn't do that. Osra did. She knows everybody in the cancer business. And a lot of people pay lip service to cancer, but they won't really do anything. And our community is doers. We do stuff. So everything up to 25 grand is going to be matched dollar for dollar. And, and what really helps us monthly, regular, recurring donations is just make it that it is such a huge help to us. And John and I are volunteers. This isn't going into our pocketbooks. This just needs to happen. Yeah, and I, th I think this is one of the things is that I think some people might feel like, what good is it what I give? You know, you know, if I can only give $250 a month, what good is that? And it, it makes a huge amount of good. Because as we scale this and get more and more people involved in donating in, in uh, both time and resources, it has a snowball effect. And plus we are the seed. We're, we're doing the first seed so that we can get some of these big donors that can end up coming in with, you know, 250, 500,000 million or more. And it, it's going to be because of you donating now that will get them more interested. I think one of the things that has been interesting to me is just how Azra, hearing her last year, and I won't, share the situation, but she was talking about how she was on calls with dozens of billionaire medical people and companies and couldn't get them to take a, a simple jump onto something that was obvious. And it was like, how is this possible? She's been able to coordinate all these people, but they wouldn't take a jump. They don't like to take those risks. They want to see that other people have already bought in and it's that kind of that social, you know, we're social animals, <laughs> but it's that kind of like, well, I'm afraid to kind of do something stupid. I'm going to wait for other people to jump in. And then when they see it's actually there, even if the idea is great, they need to see other people jumping in. And that's the impact we can have today. And I think this is one of those things, and I really believe it, that this is one of those things where you could put us in a brand new space to be able to solve it early and, and get rid of what I consider a corrupt method of how things are done. Um, and and I, let's not judge the people, but the, the, the systems in place. Yeah. Because $250 billion and basically things are no different than the 1950s, there's something going on. It's not working. The system's broken. There's a charity that Laura and I have supported for years where the founder of the charity, he's always had permission from us to use our money for the bleeding edge projects that he wants to try that where he can't point to a, a well-established, well-oiled machine that most donors want to donate. And, and Laura and I were always interested in those, like, yeah, well, that's where all the breakthroughs are going to come through. And, you know, I remember one time him thanking us, he goes, 
he, he named several projects. He said, if it wasn't for the money you gave to, you know, Project X, Project Y, and Project Z, those would have never given off the ground because we were able to get those going uh, so that our most of, you know, typical average donors could see the value that was being created by serving those people. And so this is new, but I'll tell you what, Azra is not a unknown quantity. You go research her to the heart's content. You, you read her book, The First Cell. Her husband died of leukemia. Her And, and he, he was, was the, an oncologist. Yeah, he was a leukemia <laughs> doctor and he died of leukemia. And her daughter's best friend died. When her daughter's best friend died at age 22 of brain cancer, that is what pushed Azra over the edge. She said, I have to go from being a doctor and trying to solve cancer from inside my profession. I need to become a public advocate and I need to start beating the drum. And that's what caused her to write her book and be on NPR and be on Washington Post and all of those things. And Azra and I immediately hit it off because we are both mavericks and we both are voices in the wilderness and we both know what it's like to know that you know that you know that you're on the right track. And, and it's so hard to get other people to see that. But I know that some of you guys can see that. And um, I would really like your support before the end of the year and let's get this thing going. Let's create a world where you go to Walgreens once a year, you get a blood test. And if you're in stage negative one, they already have a whole battery of things that you can do to get your lung cells back into a, a happy state so that you don't even get cancer in the first place. That's what we want. You know, and, and Eric uh, Kolker even mentioned about stress and things. And, and the great thing about this repository and doing this process, it's going to open up all these different ways of looking at how cancer starts and how to deal with it. Like, I know Eric has been a, an incredible support for us, and he, he's done so much in helping. And his research in stress, like how it causes, can cause, create the environment for cancers to occur because of, you know, undealt with traumas and those sorts of things. And so this repository allows us to look at and allow researchers to look at all different sorts of things. There's That's no right. limiting factors for how we can say this is happening and what are the cause, causalities that are creating these environments and the ways of treating it. So it'll open it up radically because today everybody is incentivized to keep their tissue repositories amongst themselves so that they can find something and create something they can make money at, which is yep. fine. But when you don't have it open to the world and to people who don't have the, the, the money and the research capabilities to do that, that's what open source is, is giving it out to people, to everyone, to be able to open up and, and create these things. So um, it was just a great point that Eric made there. By the way, I know that a few people have said that they had a hard time donating if you're out of the country. Um, we hadn't seen that problem before. So we're going to work on that. If you could email me, john, J-O-N, at reversingcancer.org, I posted in chat a couple of times, uh, email me and we're going to solve that and get that out to you. I don't want to stop your, your generosity from happening. And some of you may have already given your full budget this year 
for charities. If you could just make a pledge, even just email us, let us know that next year you want to get onto a monthly plan or something, that would be great. Uh, we also want to talk about, uh, we have a snail mail list, a list that goes out that we send out specifically on cancer and evolution 2.0, where we discuss these things and we send it by mail and we'd love you to join that. If you're interested, please email myself. Josh has posted my email address again. Email me uh, your your physical address and phone number, and then we'll get you on that list and get that uh, so you get that. We do it probably uh, once every, what, every two months? Are we doing sending it out every two months right now? It might be every month. I think it's every month. And we do have availability for email PDF as well. If you're not on that list, please give us your email address, and we'll get you on that as well. But uh, take action. Now's the time. We're really going to be going after this. This is what we're putting our chips in, all in on this and going for it this coming year. We really believe that this has uh, one of the biggest chances of of solving cancer. I, I just am so thankful for everybody. I know how busy people are in December <laughs> because we all know how hard it is to get meetings and stuff. And, and this was very well attended and um, we are going to post this on the, the evo2.org blog in the next day or two so that you can share this with people that you know. And they need to hear this story. People need to know we're not going to tolerate the status quo anymore. People are sick and tired of your sister-in-law's numbers are doing better and better and better. And then four months later, she's dead. And we've had enough. So thank you so much for giving us your time and attention and uh, really appreciate all of you. Thank you, John. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Perry. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.